Welcome to Off-Trail Learning. This is Blake Bowles. Here's a question. Does self-directed education work? Can you follow a child's lead, let them pursue their interests, forget about mandatory academics, and trust that your kid will discover the skills and knowledge that they need to thrive as adults? Can we prove that this approach works? In one sense, that's a ridiculous question. Of course, we can't prove it. This style of education works for some kids and not for others. You have to try it and find out. In another sense, it's not a ridiculous question, because why, as a parent or educator or a young person yourself, would you try a radically different educational path if there wasn't some sort of proof that it works? This is especially important for parents who are considering self-directed paths for their kids, but don't have any friends who have done it themselves. Even if your kid is struggling in traditional school, how can you know if this radical hands-off approach will really work, or if you're just going to waste a year of your kid's life, make it harder for them to return to normal school, and make a bad situation worse? Sure, there are books and websites and bloggers out there. You can find other people's stories and read their opinions, but it's all anecdotal. Even in my books, all of the stories that I give as evidence, so-called evidence, for self-directed learning, it's anecdotal. It's just stories. They're hand-picked. They're cherry-picked. Where is the cold, hard evidence? Where is the solid proof that something like unschooling or sending your kid to a radically alternative school like a democratic free school, a liberated learner's center, or an agile learning center is actually going to work? When you really start asking this question, that's when you discover Peter Gray. Peter is a research professor at Boston College and the author of a popular introductory psychology textbook. He has a PhD in biological sciences from Rockefeller University, but he spent the last few decades researching and writing about play and learning. He blogs regularly for Psychology Today. He's published a book in 2013 called Free to Learn. He gave a TEDx talk in 2014 that has over 300,000 views at this point. He's the co-founder of the Alliance for Self-Directed Education and the organization Let Grow. And he has appeared all over the major media. And his own research is the best and pretty much the only thing that the self-directed education world has to offer in terms of evidence that this whole let them be free thing actually works. But let's be honest, just because one respectable academic has embraced these ideas doesn't prove that they're legitimate. I cringe a little whenever I hear someone say that unschooling works or that free schools work because Peter has proved that they do. As you'll hear in this episode, Peter is the first one to say that his research does not prove that. So what does it prove? And what does his research say? And how can a future academic who's passionate about educational freedom contribute to this field and continue building the body of evidence? Masters and PhD students out there, I'm looking at you. That's what we're here to talk about today. Without further ado, here's Peter. My guest today is Peter Gray, the author of Free to Learn and a prolific blogger at Psychology Today. Welcome, Peter. I'm glad to be here. We are talking about the evidence for self-directed education today. And I wanted to start by asking you, uh, what, how do we even measure self-directed education or not even self-directed education, education in general and its outcomes. Uh, you have a, a PhD in well, this. You've been in this field for decades. How do people do it? Well, of course, um, you know, the, the way, the, the standard way of, uh, 
of measuring education is to assume that there are certain things that everybody's supposed to learn by a certain time, and then you test them on it. And if they learn those things by that time, then your educational system has succeeded. And uh, if they haven't learned those things, uh, then your educational system has not succeeded. That's, of course, the standard way we compare educational systems across schools, even across nations, by how well children score on certain standardized tests um, based on some kind of assumption that these are things that everybody's supposed to learn. Um, that's not my way of measuring <laughs> Yeah, yeah. What's, what's your way? So, to me, um, there's, there are really, to me, two criteria for success in an educational system, and let's say in a school. Uh, the first is, are the children happy? Um, you know, that should be a no-brainer. If the kids are not happy, that school is right off a failure, right? I mean, anything that makes kids unhappy has got to be judged a failure. So that's the first criteria. If it makes people, you know, childhood and adolescence, this is a big stretch of life. And if we're making people unhappy during that period by what we're doing in school, right off, anything else you say about it, it right off, it's a failure. The second thing, though, of course, is that, um, you know, this period of childhood and adolescence is in some sense, um, even from a biological point of view, a period of sort of preparing for the rest of life. <laughs> it's a period in which you are uh, supported or kind of supported by adults uh, as you are developing the skills and knowledge and um, character traits and so on that enable you to go on to live a, uh, an adult life in the culture that you're growing up in, to live a good adult life, a satisfying one, a, a productive one maybe with quotation marks around productive because that can be defined in so many different ways, a meaningful one, one that you find meaningful. So uh, so that's the second criterion. Does it... Um, do the, do the uh, graduates of the school or the educational system that you're looking at, do they go on to live um, meaningful and satisfying lives? So um, the only kind, in my mind, that's the only kind of evaluation you can do uh, that has any meaning at all is are the kids happy while they're, th while they're children and adolescents? And do they go on to live a satisfying and meaningful life? That seems pretty comprehensive. It's, are you enjoying the time now and in the future? Was this time well spent? And That's right. I feel like most people would agree with you on the second point, the preparation for the rest of life. Uh, I'm sure philosophically many would not disagree with the first point, but they would say the second one takes precedence. We have to prepare them for the rest of life before we can think about whether they're completely enjoying every day. Uh, and, and I imagine that college admissions and employment, uh, those are the proxies that most people use for, are you prepared for life in your culture? Are you going to be a productive citizen? Do you have a, a winning chance and having a meaningful career? Uh, do you think that's a, those are appropriate proxies, college and, and jobs, essentially? Well, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't in the long run say that college is. I think that certainly one question is are you know are you able to support yourself are you able to live you know uh, independently in that sense um, that's certainly an important one 
Um, I think that we greatly overemphasize the importance and value of, of college in our culture. I think that's going to change over time. I, uh, but uh, it is true that we've got the way things are set up right now in our culture. There's a lot of uh, careers that more or less require college um, to get into them. So um, in terms of sort of an educational system for our culture right now, uh, yes, one of the things I would want to know is, are the graduates of that system able, if they choose, to go on to college? I would certainly not want to evaluate an educational system by uh, some looking at, well, what percentage go on to college, as if that's necessarily a good thing. And in fact, um, as we know, a lot of people are suffering because they went to college, suffering financially as a result of it. Uh, and a lot of people are finding that their college education hasn't really helped them all that much in the kind of career that they want to go into. And a mm -hmm. lot of employers are finding that college um, doesn't really train <laughs> people for the careers that, that employers are looking for. So I wouldn't, but on the other hand, um, you know, as a, as a, when I, when I was concerned about this as a parent, when my son was young, um, and in fact, you know, we'll get to this a little bit later, but my initial study of, uh, this, of the self-directed education school that my son went to, I was concerned about the question, well, is college an option? Would he be able to go on to college? That, I think, is important in our world right now, because if uh, somebody goes through some kind of alternative educational system and they aren't able to get into college, you'd have to say that their life is being limited in some way uh, as a result of that. And it seems but, like we have a, a pretty good situation in the United States, because no, almost no matter what path you take through the middle school and high school years, you could still go to a community college and have an easy route in. It seems to be much more difficult in other countries to take an alternative path into college at this point. I think that's right. Uh, so many other countries have very, um, you know, where colleges are government supported uh, and um, and more or less uniform in how they accept people. Um, it's a uh, it's more difficult. I haven't done a study of that, so I can't say for certain. But it's certainly, there's more reliance on um, test scores and on um, high school um, high school achievement in terms of getting into college. True in Europe and true in East Asia. Here in Germany, where I am recording. Uh, you can go through a highly alternative school, a, a democratic free school, all the way up until roughly age 16. And then if you want to go to college, you really have to go back to a traditional school for those last two years to take, That's uh, take the tests yeah. that are necessary. There, there doesn't seem to be any good way around it. Um, mm. Peter, you are the, the, the rock star of the self-directed education world. Like No one else has produced uh, as much, I'd say, publicly laudable uh, and accessible information about free schools, about unschooling, as you have. And, and as far as I know, you are th the main academic uh, promoting this stuff. Is there anyone else you'd like to give some, some shout-outs to at this, this moment doing good work in, in academia for self-directed education? <laughs> yeah, I wish there were a whole list of such people. It is uh, unfortunate that there just are not 
you know, uh, not many people doing such work. Uh, Gina Riley uh, has uh, collaborated with me on a, um, on uh, the studies of unschoolers, and she's going on to do some other research herself uh, about how self-directed education occurs even among people going to school when they're not in school. Um, and uh, there are a number of others. I, I mentioned uh, I mentioned them. There's a, a woman, Rebecca English, uh, in Australia, who's um, published some uh, work on. Um, and she's in. A, she I forget what university she's associated with. But published some work on um, unschooling families and is gearing up to do some further research about um, uh, about the lives of unschoolers. Um, but you know, there's really almost nobody, and it's in a way, it's not too surprising. Um, there's very little uh, financial support. I've I've never been able to get a grant to do uh, the kind of research that I do. Um, wow. I could get grants back when I was doing uh, research on uh, uh, you know on binding of hormones in the brains of rats and mice. I didn't have any difficulty getting uh, government grants for it. What could be more important, Peter? That's right, yeah. But uh, <laughs> I can't get grants for this, or and I've tried several times. So uh, it's also um, generally difficult to publish uh, in academic journals. Um, I've found ways to do it, but the academic world uh, to date has just not been very interested in this, especially edu education schools have mm. not been interested mm -hmm. in it. A little bit more leeway within psychology. And I think that uh, what I'm, I'm finding is that some of the people interested in this are going into anthropology where there's a little bit more leeway about methodology and um, and a, a little bit less of a preformed attitude of what education is. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, can you give us just an overview of your research, where your interests began, and what you've published in brief? Well, well my interests began um, many years ago uh, when my own son was rebelling in school. He, had, he was going to what was regarded as a very good suburban public school, um, uh, went there through fourth grade, um, rebelling all the way through it, hated it. <laughs> and uh, we fought with him. You know, we weren't thinking that there was really any alternative at that time. Um, and so finally he won that battle and we took him out of um we we finally took him out of that public school and found um i had heard of it before but we hadn't really looked into it the the sudbury valley school which was located um only a couple miles from where we lived uh, within walking distance for my son who was 10 when he started uh going there um so this was um this was in the, uh, I think, 1979. So this was quite a long time ago. And um, this was a school that, and so I had, this, I had not been doing research, even in developmental psychology, let alone in um, self-directed education. I'd been doing, as I mentioned, I'd been doing research, sort of uh, neuroscience research um, and uh, yeah, with laboratory animals. Um, and but I got uh, when he started going to Sudbury Valley. This uh, I could say a little bit more about the school, but it's just 
briefly, this is a school that is as different from a standard school as you can imagine. Uh, there are children there from age four on through what elsewhere would be called high school age. Uh, they're not segregated by age uh, in any kind of way. They're free to go wherever they want on the campus or in the buildings. Um, and they're free to do whatever they want all day long, as long as they don't um, violate any of the school rules. And the school rules are all made democratically um, by vote in which each student and staff member, regardless of age, has one vote. Uh, there are no rules that have to do with learning. The rules have to do with you know, keeping order, not bullying one another, and, and uh, putting away your toys when you're done with them, things like that that are necessary for the community to operate in a smooth manner. Uh, there's lots of things to do, lots of uh, ways to uh, learn, uh, but nobody's required to uh, do any of those things. And uh, so here's a school that, as I said, is as different from what we think of as a school as you can imagine. And I was delighted. My son was happy. The, the brightness was coming back to his eyes. He was clearly learning and so on. But I got concerned, uh, as many parents would, is this going to be limiting his future in any kind of way? Um, you know, I, I sort of imagined, well, maybe every graduate of the school is going to be an artist or a musician, you know, that, you know, uh, are there, is, is this, uh, nothing wrong with being an artist or a musician, but um, there's a lot of struggling artists and musicians. It'd be good to know that um, it's possible to go on to some other kind of career. And it's also, it'd be good to know that it's possible to go on to college if you graduate from such a school. So those were the questions that I had in mind, pretty much the questions probably that any mother or father would have about um, their child going to such a school. I tried to get somebody who, uh, in the field of education, interested in this, and I, so I talked with people who I thought might be interested at both at Boston College and at Harvard, um, and I could not interest anybody in even going out and taking a look at this school. Huh. So uh, finally I decided, all right, if there's going to be any kind of study to answer the question that I'm concerned with, I guess I'm going to have to do it myself. So even though it's not my field, I designed a study of the graduates of the school. I got the help of uh, David Chanoff, who at that time was a part-time staff member at the school. He helped me locate the graduates and um, participated along with me in the study. Um, and um, we managed to, at that time, the school was much smaller than it is now, and it had been in existence for something like 13 or 14 years. Uh, but already there were, um, I just copied this down so I'd have the number right, 82 graduates who uh, were people who left the school at, you know, roughly, you know, sometime in their late teens, um, mid to late teens, with no intention of going on to um, a secondary school someplace else, who really left the school to go on either to higher education or some other aspect of life other than secondary schooling. And, um, and of those 82 graduates, we managed to find um, almost all of them and 69 of them. In other words, 84% of the total uh, completed a very extensive questionnaire that we gave them. So that was a good return rate, 84% of all of the graduates. We define graduates as people who had been at the school for at least 
what would have been their last two years of secondary uh, education. Um, but they ranged from people who had been there just two years to people who had been there their entire whatever, you know, what elsewhere would be called K through 12 education was all at the school. And uh, to make a long story short, the findings from that study convinced me that I don't have to worry too much about my son. Uh, the graduates that wanted to go on to college seemed to go on to college. In fact, about 50% of them were in, either were in or had completed a four-year college degree. Uh, about the same percentage as were going on from similar social class from the local public schools. Um, okay. And so, so it didn't seem to be any barrier to going to college. They went to the whole range of colleges. Um, and it was, although there, I would have to say there's kind of a disproportionate number of artists and musicians, which is great, including many who were very successful, even somewhat famous, um, ultimately quite famous in, uh, in their realms of, um, of creation. Uh, but there were scientists, there were people, there were people going, starting businesses, there were uh, people involved in human services kinds of jobs. Um, there did not seem to be any category of career that we value as a society that uh, there weren't at least some number of these graduates going on to. So the study led me to, you know, as I said, my way of evaluating, do you go on to live a satisfying and meaningful life? And, and uh, you know, the first part was a no-brainer. Oh, yeah, the kids are very happy there. Uh, and uh, that doesn't mean everybody's happy every minute. Nobody's happy every yeah, minute. Yeah, sure. All, you know, life is not like that, right? And in fact, they'd be they'd be missing out on the chance to learn how to deal with adversity where there's not some adversity going on in their lives, right? So, but overall, I mean, these kids, they, they cry at the last day of school. They don't jump with joy. They cry because they're going to have to be away from their friends at school for that. Yeah, that's a way to measure the success of yeah. any school system. Yeah. Are they crying right. out of joy or yeah. out of, out of, uh, out of <laughs> the opposite? Yeah, out of, out of the opposite, they're sad. To, it's just like you know, at a camp, or probably when you lead kids on a trip, and they have the last day. They're sad to be breaking up from what they've been enjoying and their friends and so yeah, on. That's right. So that that happens. Um, so the uh, so so, but by this criterion, they're going on in life. I, you know, it was, this was not a study. This was not, and there have not been any controlled studies. We can talk about why it would, uh, whether it's even feasible. Uh, it's not a controlled study. I can't say that they went on to, uh, in some sense, better lives than they would have had they persisted in the public school. That same group had persisted in the public school. I can't say how much of their success depended on who they were to begin with. What I can say is that they came to the school from a range of backgrounds. Uh, it's by no mean the, means the case that they all came from educated families in the sense of their families had all been to, to college. Um, and it's by no means the case that they were people who the public school system would have regarded as sort of the cream of the crop. In fact, mm -hmm. quite the opposite. There were quite a number of them who came precisely because they were doing very poorly in the public school, um, not just rebelling, but people who were failing, people who had one or another kind of diagnosis of a learning disability and so on, um, coming to this school and ending up doing just fine there. So you did a survey with um, 
Peter Chanoff in 1986, and then also with Feldman. David Chan. David excuse Chanoff. Me, excuse me, David Chanoff. Uh, right. Feldman, 1997, 2004. And then uh, you went on to survey unschooling families and grown unschoolers more recently in 2015 with Gina Riley. Is that right? That is correct, yes. Okay, so, so the bulk of your research has focused around the Sudbury Valley School itself and then self-described unschoolers. That's correct. And this is wonderful because not, not all parents uh, who are interested in these kinds of you know, alternative methods of education are going to be able to go out and do a survey like you did. And so you, you've done the hard work for them. And what you just mentioned about you know, to what extent can we prove that that these school systems or these educational methods actually made a, a significant impact on these kids. Um, that's what we'll, we'll spend a little bit more time talking about today. All right. Um, I want to quickly ask, uh, outside of the research that you have done, are you aware of any other significant research that makes the case for self-directed education methods or alternative schools that, that exists out there? Well, of course, if, if you take alternative schools writ large, if you're talking about all progressive schools, there's a fair amount of such research, uh, and, and almost all of it shows that um, the graduates of, uh, of more progressive schools tend to uh, do better in life, <laughs> at least by their judgments, um, are happier, go on to satisfying careers, are happier with their schooling than those who went to less progressive schools. But in terms of this, you know, most progressive schools are kind of on a continuum with the standard schools. Um, Sudbury Valley, the kind of school schooling that I'm looking at and unschooling are really off of that continuum. They're just really, it's not like, it's not that they're kind of like schools, but they're a little bit, they're, they're, they give you more choices and there's... Uh, more flexibility in how you're evaluated and you're given some opportunity to create your own projects and so on. This is where truly, in, in a way, the way I would I define self-directed education is you can do what looks like nothing and nobody will bother you about it. Mm. <laughs> uh, that's that's, that's my, my favorite question to ask to any little alternative school or self-directed learning program yeah. is, uh, what are you allowed not to do? Uh, that's right. What what is truly mandatory and what's not? Anyways, please continue, yeah. Peter. Yeah. So that so you know so this is uh, this is really and truly. So the staff members don't call themselves teachers. They don't believe they do any more teaching. They don't believe it's their responsibility to get the children to learn. Uh, they do believe it's their responsibility to make sure this is a safe environment. This is an environment where kids will be happy. This is an environment where the opportunities for learning are available. That's very different from saying that it's their responsibility to make the children use those opportunities. So that's the that's in a way the definition. And it really this re, this the reason this works in my uh, based on my research, based on everything that we really know about human nature is that children come into the world burning to educate themselves. <laughs> They come into the world so curious, so playful, so social. These are the basic human drives that were shaped by natural selection for the purpose of education. And look at what children learn before they ever start school. Of course, now we're put, unfortunately, we're starting them in school younger and younger. But it wasn't too long ago I could say 
that think of what children learn by the age of five before anybody ever thought of trying to teach them something in any kind of systematic <laughs> way, right? Language, and, for example. <laughs> language, for example. They really and truly, if you think about it, by the age of five, a child has learned a pretty good portion of what that child will ever know, <laughs> right? Yeah, that's fascinating. You know, and and nobody nobody is making that child do anything you know that you can't they're spending their time trying to stop the child from from getting into stuff because the child wants to get into things to learn the child wants to uh, constantly exploring and learning so that that doesn't shut itself off magically when you turn 6 or 7 or 8 we shut it off when we put children in school because now suddenly their own curiosity their own playfulness their own sociability they're wanting to learn by talking to other people and overhearing what other people are saying that gets all shut off once they start school and it's not a coincidence it's really quite deliberate because schools came about really not to broaden children's um, knowledge and interests, but to restrict it. Uh, if you look at the original purposes of schools, um, it was really to teach conformity and obedience um, and a certain amount of doctrine. Um, and it was not to promote all of education as we think of it today. Mm -hmm. if, if schools were ever designed to promote education broadly conceived, they would never have been designed the way the way we've way they our standard schools are designed. And if anyone has serious doubts about what you just said, they should read your book "Free to Learn." They should read some some John Taylor Gatto and uh, some Carol Black, <laughs> and there's a few other people who uh, make that case very powerfully. Uh, and, and so your research interests have mostly stayed in the realm of free schooling and unschooling because that's. Uh, that's the closest thing we get today to a child's natural way of learning, in your opinion. Yes, well, that's that. Those are really allowing children to use their natural ways of learning. It's really providing the conditions that permit children to educate themselves. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, I would like to take the position of a skeptical parent who says, "My kid is definitely suffering." in their school system. And so it might be a public school, it might be a private school, it might be well-funded, it might be poorly funded. Uh, all across the board, there are miserable children. And maybe they're considering something like uh, a democratic free school, and they want some sort of evidence for whether this is just some crazy hippie alternative where kids can, they come from priv privileged families and they are just able to afford to fail and their parents will help them out if, if you know, they have no future prospects, or if there's some sort of evidence, some sort of data that says, okay, this system works, at least for some kids. Um, and if they were looking at highly alternative schools or unschooling or something like North Star, then I imagine the first person they would find would be you and your articles and uh, your book. And so my first question for you, Peter, is do you believe that when people read what you've written and the videos, watch the videos you've published, do you think they come away thinking that there is conclusive evidence for, for these, for the efficacy of these alternative methods? Um, at, at least the people that I hear from think that. <laughs> yes, whether there's a group of people out there who. Uh, 
who sort of read all of this and uh, think that this is not um, good evidence, and but who don't um, talk to me about it, um, there well could be. I think that most <laughs> people who are kind of on the other side of the issue don't just ignore sure. ignore the sure. evidence. Um, but the I've heard from so many people. Uh, it's it's very gratifying. So many people who have um, said, you know, I read my I read your book or I read your articles and I've been you know, reading your blog posts. I looked up your academic research, and that allowed me, that gave me the courage to do what in some sense my gut already wanted to do, but I was afraid to do it, uh, to send my child to a Sudbury school or to, um, to take my child out of schooling and uh, do unschooling at home. I've heard, I, I can't even count up the number of people that I've heard from for which that's true. And uh, and I've been doing. This has gone on long enough that quite a number have come to me and said, "And I am so happy for how my child that my child is so much happier. My child is now. They'll tell me some success story of what the child is now doing. So that's it's very very gratifying to hear those kinds of stories. I think that um, you know the. Um, I think that what most parents need is. Not necessarily, you know, it, it's, as we talked about already, it's not even really meaningful in a sense to say what's the best educational system, because so much depends on what you define as, as education. Um, but I think parents want their children to be happy as children, and they and most parents don't want to be supporting their child all their life, right? They don't want their sure. child living in the basement. I certainly didn't, you know. Um, dads especially don't, as it turns out. Moms are a little more comfortable with that idea than dads. So uh, it's often the case that dads are more skeptical about all of this than moms. I don't know if that's been your experience. Yeah, that, that's 100% been my experience. <laughs> And so there's been a lot of cases where moms have bought my book and insisted that the dad read it, right? So as a way of uh, helping to convince the dad that this is not a crazy idea. So, um, so, so that, that indeed has happened. But I think what parents, including fathers, want to know is, um, will my child be able to go out there and make a living? This is a difficult economy we're living in. Uh, will this, will this self-directed education, will my child grow up to be prepared to survive in this economy, and not only survive, but hopefully thrive, do well, live a happy life in this economy. And, um, you know, there's more and more reason to believe, it's hard to prove statistically, but there's more and more reason to believe that, in fact, self-directed education helps people thrive better in our economy today. Because, you know, think about it, our economy needs people who are self-directed more than ever before. You can't uh, expect to get a job these days where you're going to spend the rest of your days doing the same thing, where you've learned one skill and that's all you ever need to know. You're going to have to continue learning your entire life, and that learning is going to have to be largely self-directed. You're going to have to figure out what it is you need to learn to do, get, get the kind of job you want to pursue in that kind of job you want. Almost nobody has secure jobs these days. You need to be ready and willing to roll with the punches. With to, You need to be able to embrace risk and deal with failure and all of those kinds of things. Well, these are things 
that children in self-directed education are practicing all the time. They're always responsible for their own activities. They're always figuring out how to learn what they want to know. They're always trying out things, and sometimes they fail, and sometimes they succeed. So there's much less of a transition for these people uh, from the wor- from their world of, uh, of childhood and adolescence and onto the world of adulthood. In fact, very often, Many of them have gone on into careers that are really extensions of the same activities they've been doing as kids. And sometimes they've been starting to earn some money as kids doing what they go on <laughs> to do and, as a career. And I've, I've witnessed this also, and I'm, I'm on board with the whole theory of transition from the, the K-12 realm into the adult realm as far as the, the importance of self-directed learning. And um, I want to keep my skeptical parent hat on and ask the question, this is something you've addressed already in your papers and in your book, but ask the question, well, maybe these are these, these are the kids who are already self-directed, the ones who are a little bit more motivated, the ones who have a little bit more parental support, and they, uh, they might have had a bad time in middle school or high school, uh, but then they would have been just fine. They would have gotten back on track uh, in the college years and gone on to do similarly uh, wonderful things. And and earlier in this discussion, you said, Peter, that it is very challenging to, to prove that, that that is not the case. And so I'm hoping um, to hear from you with, and if you were a parent and you were still a social scientist and you were looking critically at, at your own research from, you know, from a kind of an outsider parental point of view, um, what would be your critique of, of the evidence for self-directed education? Well, the um, I guess uh, my critique of um, it's easy in some sense it's easier as the skeptical scientist to critique my research uh, on unschooling uh, to criticize it than to criticize the research on um, follow up of Sudbury Valley and the reason okay. for that is the study of unschoolers of grown unschoolers necessarily was a self selected sample right. There's no, there's no public listing of unschoolers out there. So you can't find some list of unschoolers and select some kind of scientific sample of them and then study them. There's no way to locate them other than to put out some kind of request. I'm doing this study, and uh, you know, if you, if you are um, a grown unschooler defined as such and such, um, I'd love it if you'd volunteer. And so we got 75 volunteers that way. Well, I think it's, it's perfectly reasonable criticism to say that while these, in theory, could be the 75 most successful cases of Yeah, the know, superstars of right? unschooling. This, these could be the superstars of unschooling. We don't know. Generally, if people volunteer to be in a study, it's, either be, it's because they've got some message. They want to make some point. And so you might expect that either they would be people who love their unschooling or they would be people who are really angry and unhappy about it and wanted to get that message across. Turns out we got uh, three of the latter and 72 of the former. Yeah, it was overwhelmingly so, positive. <laughs> it was overwhelmingly positive. Now, so I don't – so. So I, so I think that you have to say, regarding the unschooling study, you have to say that what this shows is that it's perfectly possible to do unschooling and have it work really well. 
that the, the study doesn't show it's going to work really well for every family or every kid. <laughs> the study, you can't make those kinds of general claims. What you can do is you can look at the kids for whom did volunteer, the, or the young people, and they're not all well young, some of them were in their 40s and older even, um, who had been unschooled at the time. Uh, and you can say, well, look, there's people, there's this kind of person, there's that kind of person, and there's this person from this kind of family and that kind of family, and they certainly did not all come from wealthy families. Uh, and, uh, and yet they, those individuals all did well. You can kind of look at it as a set of case histories in that sense. Mm -hmm. um, you can also look at the ones who fail, who, who were unhappy with their unschooling, and you can look at, well, okay, so I, we should not do unschooling if um, the parents are, are depressed, are psychologically depressed people who are not providing a happy home, right? Um, you, so unschooling, I think, works if you've got a well-functioning family, and you've got a family who is well connected with um, with the community. You, it's not good for kids to just grow up with their parents, even with the best parents, <laughs> as your only models, uh, with your siblings as your only playmates, and so on. It's really important to grow up with a sense of their of connection to a larger community. And if you're going to a Sudbury model school, you're getting that through the school, which is a larger community. If you're doing it at home, it's very important that you that you be growing up in a family that has those kinds of connections and mm -hmm. can facilitate those kinds of connections mm -hmm. for you. So I, I don't think unschooling is the answer in some sense as a general approach to education. There are certainly unschoolers who will take issue with me on this, mm -hmm. but uh, that's my view of it. And uh, can I just attempt to summarize sure. that before you move on to the Sudbury Valley School results? Yes. Right. So what your study, which was a survey, shows, the only thing it can, conclu it can conclusively show is that there are some families out there for whom unschooling has worked very well. And those are the families who have uh, chosen to, to share their stories with you. And so it, it's still possible that there is some much larger number of families out there for whom unschooling has been a mixed bag or for whom it's it's been a failure. And those are the ones who are just not speaking up. And so theoretically, it's possible that uh, we're only seeing one tiny, very optimistic slice of the pie. Um, you know, that doesn't match my personal experience working in this field. And I assume it doesn't with yours either, but it's still possible, right? That's right. It, and it doesn't match my experience of being at many unschooling conferences and hearing from so many people doing it from and so on. That, yeah. That's right. Yeah. And, and if there was some huge <laughs> number of of totally dysfunctional unschoolers out there, I feel like there would have been some sign, some indication at some point that this was going on. Uh, right. I, I just don't imagine it could stay underground permanently. The, the other thing that must be stated in this context is there are people who start uh, homeschooling and then unschooling who then decide to go back to school, <laughs> you know, for various reasons. And, um, yeah, and, and, uh, and oftentimes, you know, even reasons that I would say are quite legitimate reasons. Somebody wants to be involved in, you know, they've gotten really interested in sports and they want to be on the, on the, uh, a, a real baseball team or basketball sure. team or football yeah. team, you know, and so they'll go to school or somebody who just decides 
you know, I really, I really want to be part of the school culture. I want to go to proms. I want to do these yeah, kinds I, of I've things. Met and lots of these uh, teens. And and there are people who will who will do that. And there's nothing wrong with it. And very interestingly, they don't have any difficulty. Just like they don't have difficulty going on to college without um, doing all the preparation that yep. supposedly do. They don't have any difficulty. Somebody who's never been to school before decides in their junior year of high school they want to go to high school. Somehow they just go right in there. It's, I think it's a interesting. That's in itself is a fascinating observation, and I think it's it's not so much that the students going in have learned everything that uh, have studied everything. They certainly haven't that those other kids would have. But it's really shows you how little actually has been learned by those who've been going all along. Unfortunately, I agree. You can can fit right in. You're not really behind because although everybody's been passing those tests, that doesn't mean that they have kept it in their head Mm -hmm. from one grade to the next. Mm -hmm. So how would a skeptical social scientist parent Peter critique current actual Peter's (laughs) research (laughs) on the Sudbury Valley School and its graduates? Yes. Well, I think that um, one thing you could say is that one thing that I have not taken into account in this study is um, is that there are students who come to the school and then leave. Um, and uh, have they left because the school hasn't worked out for them? And uh, so is there a category, is there a group of student who, for whom the school doesn't work out, who uh, then go, leaves the school. Now, that would be a critique of my study. They're actually, um, the school itself, um, and although you could critique this simply on the grounds that it was done by the school itself, <laughs> has uh, done uh, two larger scale studies more recently in history than mine. Uh, where they looked at all the former students, students who left the school. Um, uh, certainly one of those studies, I can't remember for sure if both of, that's true for both of them, but one of them, they looked at all the former students and uh, looked at why they left the school and uh, what they did after leaving and what their retrospections were. And it was not the case, for the most part, that those who left the school had negative memories about being at the school or felt that the school failed them in some sense. They left for a variety of reasons, sometimes because they moved, sometimes because their parent. you know, there's a, in some cases there are parents who will send their child to the school more for therapy than education. They see mm. that their child is suffering. They see that their child, maybe it's a teenager who's on drugs. Maybe it's somebody who's being bullied at school. Maybe it's somebody who's, go- who's anxious and depressed about school. So they take the kid out of school. They send them to Sudbury Valley, and the kid gets better, right? <laughs> and so now they think it's time to send the child back to regular school. And so they do that, and even though the child wants to stay at Sudbury Valley. So that happens, and that's always very sad when that happens. But, it's probably um, cheaper than the same amount of actual therapy, though. There's a certain it, utility it to it, right? That's, there is definitely utility to it, and there are <laughs> students who will say that that really was successful uh, for me. I uh, did go back to school uh, better, uh, better able to control myself better you know, than before. So... So I don't have any evidence, but I can't rule out, based certainly not on my own research, that there are is some set of kids for whom uh, the school um, hasn't worked. 
I think, though, as there's more and more Sudbury model schools, more and more schools like Agile Learning Centers and others that are, um, that are similar to Sudbury Valley in the sense that children are, are completely self-directed in their education, I think we're beginning to see, it's beginning to be harder and harder to identify any class of individuals that, for whom there's not evidence that this works. Mm. Certainly, uh, I, you know, more, there are more and more schools, for example, the Philly Free School, and then there's some other schools that are modeled after Sudbury Valley that now uh, have sliding tuition scales, including free tuition, uh, that are deliberately trying to attract kids from uh, poverty backgrounds. Um, there's not enough, and there haven't been follow-up studies um, to say, but I visited the schools. The staff members seem to think, the parents seem to think this is just working out great for these kids. Mm-hmm. I think that for kids, you know, one of the criticisms in the past has been that, well, you know, this is fine. Sudbury Valley is this sort of lily white school in the suburbs, mostly middle class and above parents sending their kids there. That's all fine and good. But this would never work for kids uh, from the inner city or from neighborhood, from parents who are less literate themselves and so on. Uh, I've always felt in theory that the opposite is true, that in fact, uh, this would be especially valuable for kids who have less educational opportunity at home because what the school provides is all the educational opportunities that the very educationally richest home would provide. <laughs> it's got all of this equipment. It's got, peop- it's got people from a whole range of backgrounds. It's got staff members who are kind of like your uncles and aunts in yeah. a way. Books and musical it's, instruments and computers and, and outdoor space. People who know what it means to go to college, people who know what it means to be a doctor or a lawyer. So those things are no longer mysteries as they would have been if you had. Mm. And our public schools don't provide that. Our public schools provide tests and rigid, uh, you know, assignments and discomfort for people. And here you're in this comfortable, in some sense, home-like environment. Uh, and you're interacting with people, you're listening to people who are talking about ideas and politics and, and religion, arguing religion even. You know, you've, you've got the whole range of intellectual um, conversation going on. You've, you've, you're exposed to older kids who are using a richer vocabulary than, than you are and maybe even more richer than what your parents would have been using at home. Uh, and so that's... Um, all of that tells me that this would be even more important for kids from so-called education-deprived backgrounds uh-huh. than for kids who from educationally enriched homes. And uh, I have a follow-up question to that, Peter. If you had unlimited funds to run an experiment, to, to create your own experiment, to test that idea that perhaps the Sudbury Valley School works even better for uh, kids from lower socioeconomic or more disadvantaged backgrounds, what would that experiment look like? And, and how could you design it to have the maximum number of controls that are possible in the world that we live in where we still can't clone children and you know, we can't keep them in, in boxes? Uh, we still have to be ethical. What, what would the perfect experiment look like to show that this system works, so to speak? Well, the way this kind of experiment is done, of course, you can't um, 
unlike my old research with rats, where I could just uh, randomize the rats, right? I can say, okay, these rats are going to get this treatment, and these rats are going to get that treatment, and then we're going to compare them. You can't um, ethically do that with human beings. But uh, so when you're doing human research, uh, and you want to do it in the, as close to a uh, true experiment as you can, the typical way to do it. And so, so let me sort of imagine, let me kind of, I'm free associating here a little bit, but let me imagine an experiment that one might do. So let's say you, you, you might do this in Philadelphia, where, this, where the um, Philly Free School is, uh, or you might do it in, uh, there, are, uh, there are some other cities uh, where there are um, Sudbury Model Schools. So you uh, do a survey among, um, uh, you, somehow you get into the community that you're interested. So maybe this is um, families that, uh, that are uh, below the poverty line, um, however you want to define below the poverty line. So that's your sample. Um, you somehow gain access to that population or a sufficient number, and you offer, you say to this population, um, you know, we're actually doing um, an experiment where uh, some children are going to uh, have the opportunity to attend, let's say, the Philly Free School, and they will be able to attend free, and they will get the same free lunch there that they would in, in the public school. Uh, and um, other children are going to continue in the public school. You would find some probably small percentage of the people within this community who say that, um, all right, you know, we're interested in this. At least it's worthwhile for a try. <laughs> um, then what you do is you then you do a kind of control study in which half of those who agree to be in the study. So you started mm -hmm. with people who agree to be in the study. So you're, you're not self-selecting those who are agree to be in the study and they're going to be in the study versus mm -hmm. those who don't agree. So everybody's got has, has agreed. So these are all people who agree that it might not be a bad idea for their kid to go to this kind of a school. Uh, and then you do it, you do it um, in such a way that uh, those people, this is the way drug studies are done, right? So people who agree to take the drug, you know, the, uh, so some of them take the drug, some of them don't. And that, so then, and so now your comparison group is those who agreed to be in the study. It, you've got to deal with the fact that they may be disappointed. <laughs> they didn't get to be in the study. And so, and then what you do is you, you follow the students up. Um, and uh, and and look over over a length of time. As I said, there are sort of two criteria: how happy are they? <laughs> so you look at how happy the kids are at the at the Sudbury school that they're going to, and how happy the control group are at the public school they're going to. Uh, and maybe you do some kind of um, testing over time, where the testing that I have in mind is testing that would have to do with sort of satisfaction with life, uh, sense of self-efficacy, to what degree do I feel that I'm in control of things, that I actually can create the life that I want. You might do some of that, both for the kids at the Sudbury School and the kids who are still in the other school. And then you would follow them up. What kind of lives do they go on to? And ideally, you would look at them as adults. What have their lives been like? How are, are they happy with their life? How have they... Have they um, uh, 
ha- have they been on the right side of the law? Have they kept out of mental hospitals? Have they, um, and are they able to support themselves? What kind of jobs? And for those who, um, have they, have they been able to go on to higher education if they wanted to do that? So that would be the closest that I can imagine, at mm-hmm. least in, uh, in this time course of thinking that of, of a, actual experiment that one might do to mm-hmm. uh, to test the possibility of uh, the value of a Sudbury type education of mm-hmm. self-directed education for this kind of group there there are people doing research on unschooling uh, among uh, African Americans but they're not generally speaking poor African Americans who are choosing unschooling there are oftentimes people who aren't very wealthy in fact unschoolers on average, the data, what little data we have suggests that the average income of um, unschoolers is less than the average income of Americans in general. So it's not the case that unschooling is just there for the wealthy, um, in fact. But, it's, but yet, if you are on welfare and if you are, um, are unemployed and you're a single mom uh, and so on, you're probably not likely to choose unschooling. And my response to that question has often been that it's a, a pretty clearly a middle class phenomenon. It's it's people at at either end of the the poverty or the or the the wealth uh, scale are generally not doing unschooling, as far as I'm aware. Um, right. It's it's mostly right. people in the middle. Um, and so, the, and they're but even by income they're often sort of lower middle and but that's more of a life choice because they've sure. chosen to they've chosen uh, a life of not seeking high income jobs so that they can spend more time at home more time with family uh, where quality of life is more more important than material things they're often people who made that as a as a life choice and you know that's another thing that people who are skeptical of this, um, of these practices, might say is that well, you're just looking at families who uh, who make these kinds of decisions in the first place. They they choose voluntary simplicity. They're kind of anti-consumerist, um, and that's what I love about the, the large-scale experiment that you just described. You know, it would control for that in the best way that uh, that we can, because all, all those families would have to opt in in the first place, and so you, you're controlling for right. for that lifestyle decision. Um, but even that. That perfect study, which you described, that would take what twenty years, and probably would, that would cost more than a million dollars. I'm sure. Yeah, to do it well, you know, you could get some data right off. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could certainly get some data right off, and you could certainly, I don't know, within ten years, you would have at least some reasonable data. But you're right; it would take it would take a, it would take a long time. Yeah. And people are not oriented towards doing long-term studies. And in fact, this is one of the big problems with educational research. So, the typical educational research study, you know, you you give uh, well. So, uh, here, a good example is the research that purportedly supports the value of early academic training for little kids, right? So you you put some kids into academic preschools and kindergartens and you teach them pre-reading skills and number skills and so on and so forth in a deliberate kind of fashion and others they continue with play-based, so this is done in experimental fashion. And lo and behold, in first grade, those who've been in the academic 
track do a little better on the things that they've been taught, right, than the kids who weren't taught those things. And so then this gets published as how important it is to have be teaching these academic skills. Well, there's only a few studies that have followed this up for, for more than that first year, and every one of those studies that have followed it up shows that this boost that occurs from the early training completely washes out by third or fourth grade, wow. if not earlier. And is often reversed. What? So that what? I, I actually, you can find a blog post of mine on this. There are at least three studies that show reversal, that by fourth and fifth grade, the kids who are in the play uh, preschool and kindergarten are doing better on every measure, social and academic, than the kids who were. And this, these are controlled studies, similar kids going mm -hmm. in. Mm -hmm. So, but but the 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 educational community ignores those studies, and they pay attention to the many more studies that haven't followed up in that kind of way. And they and they're they're they are just looking at that short term effect. So you can you can prove you know by you can show. So this this is the real problem that that why the educational world um, is not has has difficulty embracing any kind of concept of self-directed education is because all of their research is of that sort. So you basically the research goes like this. We're going to teach one group of kids the answers to the test question. <laughs> and then we're not going to teach that to the other group of kids. And then we're going to test the kids at some point after that. And lo and behold, the kids who are directly taught the answers to the test questions, they do better on those test questions, right, than the other kids. Uh, it's, it's a no-brainer result, of course, but you're not testing the kids on the myriad things that the other kids are learning and which are unpredictable what they're learning. Every kid is in self-directed education is learning something different. So there's no way to test for it. And if your entire science of education, so if you want to call it a science, is based on experimental research that involves tests, then of course every study is going to support the value of direct instruction as opposed to the value of allowing kids to discover and learn things on their own. Mm -hmm. Because they're taking the short-term perspective. Because they're taking the short-term perspective, mm -hmm. right? Uh, Peter, if somebody wanted to get into research in the field of self-directed education, if they were inspired by your work and were looking for opportunities and, and not million-dollar, you know, 10-year-long longitudinal study opportunities, but something that a, a master's student or a PhD student could, could tackle to make right. some sort of contribution to the fields, do you have any guidance for these people where they might be looking, what problems they should be considering? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that there are uh, relatively short-term studies, certainly within the realm of a PhD dissertation kind of study that can be done. So for example, you know, my um, uh, former graduate student, Jay Feldman, who collaborated with me on the research on how children learn at Sudbury Valley, that was a study that, uh, you know, he's, he's over the course of two or three years, he spent about a, 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 more than 100 days at the school making observations um, about age-mixed interactions and what's going on. It was observational research. It was a very well-designed 
work uh, and very worthwhile. So that was a study about how learning occurs. There's a lot of studies about what kids do when they're free to do things that can be done. Now, in terms of sort of short, relatively short-term studies on, um, on whether or not um, self-directed education works for one group of kids versus another, I think that there, that um, you can do short-term studies of um, of this sort. You can, you know, it's it's some people within self-directed education would question whether you should do such a study, and I have somewhat mixed feelings. Mm. But mm. but a study that basically let, let's say let's say. You know, one of the criticisms of self-directed education, as we've just been talking about, is there aren't very many family, aren't very many kids from uh, deprived backgrounds who are involved in it. But there are some. Now, suppose you did a study maybe at the Philly Free School or maybe at, at two or three different schools that are in inner cities and are attracting a certain number of kids from the local environment, kids who are from uh, what, what can be classified as uh, impoverished homes. Um, and you're doing sort of a longitudinal study. You're looking at, you're assessing, uh, you're interviewing the parents or the parent about, um, about why they thought this would be worth trying out. You're kind of interviewing the child over time. You're maybe assessing certain things about the child, like uh, the degree to which the child feels in control of their own life, the degree to which the child is happy. Uh, and maybe you are even looking at some things like uh, over time, like ability to um, um, to speak standard English, if you think that's a valuable <laughs> characteristic being developed. There is some value in that. You know, if you're not speaking standard English, it's probably a little harder to get into the middle class work world and upper class work world. Uh, look at... Um, uh, uh, possibly, you know, kind of even some sort of basic skills over time, just in some fairly easy way, assess those things over time, even though that runs counter to self-directed education. If you can do it in some non-threatening way, there are arguments that there's no way to do it in a non-threatening way. And I can understand those arguments, but the, um, but at, at minimum, just do sort of interviews over time to see how the child seems to be adapting, see what the staff feel about how the child is adapting. And I think you could get useful results, you know, within with a two or three year study. And then you could follow that up with a longer term study. Mm -hmm. uh, but you would have publishable results, I think. Uh, you would certainly have master's degree or PhD kind of dissertation work within a short period of time. There are already, I, I've uh, been somewhat involved with a graduate student who is studying African-American um, homeschoolers and unschoolers uh, based on complete interview work with the parents and with the uh, kids and just looking at sort of in a qualitative way uh, from the viewpoint of the people involved in it, the kids and the parents, how does this seem to be working out for you? And not to go too far into the academic weeds here, but what kind of journals uh, would somebody doing these kinds of short-term experiments, uh, short-term research, what, what kind of journals could they look to publish in? Yeah. Okay. So I, um, it was important to me with my first uh, articles to publish in uh, standard uh, academic uh, education journals. So I, 
uh, and it was difficult to do it, I have to say. Um, I submitted my original study of the Sudbury Valley graduates to a couple of, um, well, I submitted the first to the Harvard Education Review, and they rejected it out of hand. And I later learned from a graduate student that they rejected it. Uh, he told me I probably shouldn't tell you this, but the, they rejected it not because of the quality of the research. They rejected it because they didn't want anything to do with Sudbury Valley. And so they really felt I, it, it was very clear that they felt that associating the journal with some study that seemed to be favorable to Sudbury Valley School would not be good for the reputation of the Harvard Education Review. Mm. And so then I submitted the article to the American Journal of Education, um, and which ultimately accepted the article. But one of the reviews, so when, when you submit a, an article to a academic journal it goes through peer review and that means it's sent out to other, to some other education researchers who anonymously present their view of the work it was very interesting to me that the they sent me the peer reviews uh, and one of the two peer both of them were positive but one of the two peer reviews at the bottom and a little note to the editor said what are you afraid of <laughs> And so, to me, that was indicating that the editor had expressed some fear of publishing this article in the American Journal of Education. Uh, and I was really pleased that that <laughs> particular reviewer challenged them. You know, yeah. what are you afraid of? And I think that that probably played a role in the fact that they published it. Huh. Subsequently, the study that Jay Feldman and I published, also in the American Journal of Education, somewhat later on, again, we tried to publish that in another journal or two, and they rejected it. And again, I really believe, I mean, they found reasons to reject it. You know, a common reason for rejecting it is, what does this have to do with the real problems of child development education in the real world out mm. there? The mm -hmm. real world to them means the world of actual schools where most people are going to school, right? This is a little school that's a small number of kids going there. Why should, why should this be of interest? That's also why it's, the research has been rejected for grant applications. Well, my argument is the purpose of research is not just to document what exists <laughs> for the most people. It's to sort of find out what are the possibilities. What do what what do we what are the things that could be happening? What are the you know? Um, and I think most people in most realms of research understand that. But so I think that this is more of an excuse for not wanting to publish it than the actual reason for not wanting to publish it. So today I think it's the, the it, I don't honestly know, but it may be a little bit easier to get the, such articles into the more standard journals. I have been happy enough recently to publish in, um, so there are two journals which are specifically for uh, alternative education. Um, uh, the Journal of Unschooling and Alternative Learning, JUAL, J-U-A-L, um, and it's a peer-reviewed journal, um, and uh, it focuses on articles that have to do with uh, people learning in, in alternative ways from the standard way of learning. And there's a journal, um, an international journal centered in the UK called Other Education. Uh, and they also publish uh, primarily articles that are looking at alternatives to the standard 
Yeah. So it's easy um, for me now to publish articles there in either of those journals. In the last couple of articles, uh, the ones that Gina Riley and I authored together, we've published one in Jewel and one in Other Education. Um, and, and also sort of an advantage of that, too, is that somebody who's really looking for research on, on uh, self-directed education, presumably the first place they would look would be those journals. So, and I'm also very happy to support those journals. To, um, uh, you know, and, I, and I think if those journals gain in reputation, um, and I'm hoping that my articles there help them gain in reputation, that that would also... Um, make it more, uh, attract more academicians to do such research. So here's journals that have a fairly good reputation, uh, and they are academic journals, so this must be a legitimate academic area. And I, if I can show my research advisor some of the work that's been published in that journal, mm -hmm. then I can argue that I should be able to get an article published if I do this study in that journal, that will help. Mm -hmm. And I'm aware of your time, Peter. Uh, There's so much more I'd love to ask you about, but I think the last question for today is, what is next for you in terms of your research in this field? Uh, what are you interested and curious about at this point? Right. Well, I won't go into the de into details because it would take a while, but I was... Uh a couple of years ago, I had designed a really major and what would be quite expensive study that would really be a comparative study of four kinds of schools uh, and uh, a way of really uh, doing the best one can to equalize the backgrounds of the people who would be the subjects of that experiment, uh, of that study. It would still be a correlational study, not really an experiment. Um, and um, unfortunately, I was not able to get the kind of research support the kind that I was not able to get the grant. I tried really hard with two major granting organizations to get funding for it and was not able to get funding for it. I now sort of pulled back on my expectations of the kind of research that's feasible. Um, I might say, you know, one study that I have just very recently got involved in is going to be just a simple follow-up study of the uh, Hudson Valley Sudbury School. They're interested in doing a follow-up study, somewhat like the study that I did years ago of Sudbury Valley. I think at this point it's valuable to do that. It's it's relatively easy to do that. And the more samples we have, and this would be a more recent sample of uh, what it you know a study of why people came to the school, what they're doing after the school. I think that that's I think that that's useful. Um, and the purpose of such a study at this point in my mind is not to prove or disprove that self-directed education works. To me, it's, it's clear that it works, <laughs> you know. The, it's, it's, really to, it's really to look at what are the various ways that people educate themselves? What are the kinds of things that people go on to? What, what can we say about the relationship between what somebody does while they're a kid or a teenager um, and what they do later on in life in situations where they are in control of their own life. And how do the graduates themselves see, uh, what do they see as the advantages and perhaps disadvantages of having gone to such a school? And these are all 
honest questions. They don't have to do with trying to, in my mind at least, prove that a Sudbury education works. They have to do with um, learning more about how it works, uh, what you might expect with, with your child. But yet, nevertheless, for the parents who are new to this, I think the more studies that have been done that do show, look, there are all these people who've done this, <laughs> they're out there in the real world, and at minimum, what we can say is they're doing okay, right? They're doing okay out there. And there's one final, since we've been talking about research evidence, uh, there's one final comment that I would like to make, and, and that's really this. Where should the burden of proof really lie? So we've got two systems of education, let's say. One of them is a coercive system. It's a little bit like putting somebody into an institution, putting them into, my son would call it jail, and there are times I call it, I call it prison too. It is, you know, you're forced to be there, and you're forced to be there for a long time, and you're told exactly what to do. Uh, you've got that system versus another system where we're letting people do what they want to do, right? Should should the burden of evidence be to prove that letting people do what they want to do works better than putting people into this prison-like situation? Or should the burden of evidence be the other way around, that you just don't have the right to put somebody in a prison-like environment unless you can prove <laughs> that, they are do would, that their future happiness and the success of our culture depends on doing that? You know, we don't we don't allow we don't allow the society to put people in jail unless you can prove that they are a threat to society by not being in jail. And we don't allow the society to put adults into a mental hospital unless you can prove that they are a threat to themselves and others outside of the mental health hospital. And yet we put children into that kind of an institution just because of their age. And we have no proof, <laughs> no proof at all that their lives are better because of that or that our society is better because we're doing that. I think that that is a perfect place to end this. We live in a free country and the burden of proof should uh, to lie within the institutions that are trying to restrict that freedom instead of the other way around. Exactly. Peter Gray, thank you so much for your time. Thank you.